0: Thank you, Brian, and thank you, Praise Team, uh, for leading us in worship this morning. I know I'm 24 hours ahead of you guys, but I feel like I'm right there with you right now, and I'm looking forward to sharing what God has put on my heart from a passage that really is a pretty simple <laughs> passage in some senses, but also is deep with meaning for us today. So I want to ask you if you would to join me um, in a time of really heartfelt prayer as we start our Uh, teaching time would you join me as we pray together father by your divine plan the other day as I was meditating and thinking about what you wanted me to share um, the song came on that I don't even know the title of but it said so many leaders when what you want is servants and father that is so true there are so many people who want to lead, who want power, who bandy about trying to gain control when all you ask for are servants. And as we look into your word today, as we think about what it says to us, I pray that you will help us to have servant hearts. Help me if I ever fall prey to wanting to have power and control to recognize the fact that that's not what a pastor is. A pastor is not a CEO. He's not a boss. He is a man who leads by serving and who serves by leading. And I pray that in our time together, we will examine our own hearts and ask ask ourselves, what is it that we are really looking for? What is it that we are seeking? Whose will is it that we want in our lives? So touch our hearts by your Spirit as we look into your Word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles or your um, electronic device or the little yellow sheet that was uh, on your chair, and uh, let's look together at 1 Samuel chapter 31. We come to the last message in this series from 1 Samuel, and even though really it's not like the end of a lot of books because we go right into Second Samuel and it keeps on going, but we're going to stop here for a while and we'll come back to 2 Samuel in a, a year or so. Um, but even at that, when you get to the end of a book, there is some closure that takes place. And in this case, it is a very um, definitive closure in the life of one particular man in particular and his three sons and others around him. You remember we started... First Samuel, three months ago, with a man and his beloved but barren wife, Hannah. And Elkanah and Hannah have gone to the, to the tabernacle to pray, and Hannah is begging for a son. And Eli says to her that she will, in fact, give birth to a son. And then when she has the baby, she brings him back to the Lord, back to Eli and in chapter 2, she prays this beautiful prayer. And I think it's very interesting that at the very end of the prayer, she says some words that are just more prophetic than I think she realized. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she says, Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And now listen to these next words. And remember when she said them. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed there was no king in Israel they had had the judges and they had Samuel who was both a judge and a prophet but Hannah in her prayer led by God's Spirit said there will be a king well then we get into chapter 4 you remember that chapter that's when the Philistines came they went out to battle against them. the Israelites did and the Philistines rout them and take the Ark of the Covenant and take it to the temple of Dagon. And we find that Dagon, the, the statue of Dagon, is, is, is falls on his face, his uh, head is broken off, his arms are broken off in, 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 a, in a sign of subjugation to the only one true God in the universe. But this is the point where the people of Israel say, we want a king. And Samuel says, you don't need a king. You already have a king. God is your king. And they say, no, 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 no. We want a king that we can see, that we can touch, that we can follow, that we can listen to with our physical ears. One that can lead us and one that we can hold accountable and the one that we can blame when things don't go right. We want a king like all the other nations have. And so God tells Samuel, okay, we will give them a king. But they need to understand, I will still be their king. He will be the viceroy. He will be my servant. He will be my right hand. And so he gave them a king that he knew, God knew was not going to be the best man for them. But as he always does, as God so often does, he gives them an opportunity to make a choice. Are they going to follow God or are they going to follow this human leader? And so Saul, who begins his life understanding that God has chosen him, God has anointed him, goes down this path of seeking his own will, his own way, seeking to hoard power to himself and hold on to his leadership and his control. And then we come through this series of passages where David begins to come to the forefront. We have his battle with Goliath. We have Saul wanting to kill him, chasing him, uh, being so angry with him that he tries to stab him with his spear. Um, And all of this time, David continues to seek God's face and to humbly refuse to take matters into his own hand. And finally, we come to chapter 31, and guess who the Israelites are battling again? That's right, the Philistines. I want to take this chapter and divide it into four parts and kind of go over that and then spend a good bit of our time toward the end talking about our application. The first part is what I call part one of the Philistine victory. Okay, Philistine victory part one, and that's found in verses one to three. Look at how the chapter starts. The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them. Many were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinatab, and Malkishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers caught up with him and severely wounded him. Now, just very quickly, let me make sure that we understand that what the writer of 1 Samuel has been doing is he's been setting two stories in parallel with each other. I don't have time to go back and read all of it to you, but you remember that when Saul went to Endor to consult with the witch and through her with Samuel. At the same time, David was heading back home. He had been rejected by the Philistine kings. They said, he will not go out and fight with us. David got his feelings hurt and said, what have I done wrong? And the head of his city said, you've done nothing wrong in my mind, but you just need to leave for, for, and make peace. So he went south back to the town of Ziklag, where he was from, all of his men were from, where they had set up their home, where they had left their wives and left their children, only to find that it had been destroyed by the Amalekites. They had taken the wives and children as hostages, taken all of their goods as loot, and were headed out away. And so David and his men are going out to defeat the Amalekites, to destroy them, to chase them down, and the Amalekites are fleeing from them for all their worth. David catches up with them, beats them in battle, gets all of their wives and children back, gets all of their bounty back. Every single thing that had been taken was restored. And all of this is going on at the same time that north 100 miles, there is this situation at the valley of jezreel between the philistines and the israelites on mount gilboa so understand these are like like when you're watching a a tv show and you flip from one spot to another so while this is going on with saul and the philistines david is doing this and defeating and redeeming his people and bringing them back home again so Now we get back to Saul and we see what's going on there, back to Jezreel, back to this valley. And it sounds like the way this is written is that probably originally the battle began down there in the valley. That's where you would come and meet your enemy. You remember even with David and Goliath, they met in the space between the two hills in order to fight. And the Philistines were known as being people who were very, very powerful, especially with chariots. Even the secular literature of the time, the ancient literature, there are carvings and friezes in various parts of the ancient world that showed the Philistines and they were masters of the chariot. And so it was absolutely impossible for the Israelites to be able to defeat them. And so they begin to retreat up into the mountain hill into the hillsides up on Mount Gilboa. Well, you can't take chariots into the mountains, they won't work. But the Philistines had something else. They had archers. And so it actually says, if you notice, it says they overtook him and killed him. It says when the battle intensified, the archers caught up with him in verse 3. And they caught up to him, and they were able to shoot both his three sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. Not sure why the fourth son wasn't there. We'll see him later on when we get to 2 Samuel. And they, and, and Saul certainly had his sons right by his side as they were together, and he saw his three sons, especially his firstborn son, die before him. And then they find Saul, they catch up with him, and they wound him severely. The battle belongs to the Philistines. And isn't it ironic that of all people that Saul would face his death, it would be the Philistines. Do you remember back in chapter 9? Do you remember when Samuel said to Saul, God has chosen you to rout the Philistines and defeat them for my people Israel? It looks just like chapter 4 all over again, doesn't it? Except instead of losing the Ark of the Covenant, this time they're losing their king. And not only their king, but their crown princes as well. And so here we have this victory on the part of the Philistines, and that leads us to scene 2, which is... Saul's death, which we see in verses 4 through 6. Saul turns to his armor bearer, and I think you know what an armor bearer was. An armor bearer was not someone that just stood by the side and handed him weapons. The armor bearer held this huge shield, probably close to six feet high. He held it in his arms in front of him and stood in front of the one that he was protecting. And his job was to deflect the arrows and the swords so that then his king, his commander, could step around and fight and then get behind the shield for protection because there was no way you could hold a shield that large. If you had a shield at all, it probably was one of those smaller round ones. So when you stepped out, you could protect yourself as you were fighting your enemy. So he turns to his armor bearer, this trusted assistant, and says, draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. He has one request of his armor bearer. You take my life so that the Philistines won't take me captive and torture me and kill me. I don't want to be tortured by the Philistines, by my enemies. But the armor bearer at the end of verse 4 says that he would not do it because he was terrified. Now, I want you to understand, I don't think the terrified means he was afraid to kill him. This is a young man who probably knew a lot about battle, knew a lot about killing, had seen a lot of bloodshed. He was just like David had been. He knew it was not his place to kill the Lord's anointed. And so he would not do it. He would not take Saul's life. And it wasn't he was trying to be mean. It wasn't he was trying to make him the subject of the Philistine torture. It was that he knew it was not his place to do the work that only God could do. And so what does he do? He steps aside. Saul takes his own sword and falls on it. And when he does that, his armor bearer, saw that he was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. So on that day, it says in verse 6, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all of his men. Now, I don't know if that means that every single last soldier was killed, but a significant enough of a number of them were that it was a terrific and horrific battle. Now, let me just stop right here for a couple of minutes, and let's just think about the tragedy of death, Okay. And I want to make sure you understand what I'm about to say about Saul's death. This was not a suicide in the sense of someone who has become so depressed and so hopeless that they see no other way to live except to take their own life. That is a tragic thing. And and it does not help the situation, obviously, but this is not what happened with Saul. Listen very carefully. All of Saul's life, he had refused to submit himself to God's will. He was going to be the commander of his fate. He was going to be the master of his own soul. He was going to make his own decisions and do things in his time and in his way. And right down to the moment of his death, he said, I will be in charge of my life, and I will be in charge of my death. And so Saul, rather than letting God work his will in his life, chose to take his own life. But I think the thing that's most Shocking and the most saddening to me in this passage is not the way in which Saul died. It's what Saul did not say. Never once did he cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David did when he wrote the 22nd Psalm. Probably David said it a lot of times. Saul never cried out in repentance, God, please forgive me for being so self-centered, for being so selfish. He never even mentions God's name at the moment of his death. He never cries out to God. And he dies alone, left by his sons, left by his armor-bearer, left by his God. Well, that takes us into scene three, the victory part two of the Philistines. Look at verse seven. It says, when the men of Israel on the other side of the valley, on the other side of the Jordan, saw that Israel, Israel's men had run away and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities." and fled well the ripple effect of this battle the ripple effect of all of this could be seen and you say well how could they see it well mount gilboa is a very high mountain and if you were living in one of the cities within a few miles of there and you could look and see off on the top of mount gilboa the smoke rising and you would not be able to hear any kind of cheer from the israelites you would know that something was amiss and that's exactly what happened to those surrounding cities They knew that something terrible had happened, and they immediately began to flee for their lives. They abandoned their cities. They abandoned their homes. They abandoned everything that they had, and they fled. And at the end of verse 7, it says, so the Philistines came and settled in them. Beloved, if you go back to the very beginning of 1 Samuel, back to chapter 4, you realize the Israelites were living in a land that had been promised to them, but that was inhabited by the Philistines. And guess what? They're back in that very same situation again. All because of a king who would not listen to the real king, who would not obey, who would not humble himself, who would not see him as leading by serving and serving by leading. And here the people are. Now we get to verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. That in itself is an amazing statement. Now, I want you to think about why that's so amazing. The the battle had been so intense. There were so many corpses lying on the ground. There were so many dead scattered all over the mountainside of Mount Gilboa that the Philistines didn't even realize that the king himself had been killed until the next day. And when they were going back, looting the bodies for for weapons, for whatever they might have, which was very typical, nothing unusual about that. Lo and behold, they turned over this dead body, and it was none other than King Saul himself. Saul took his own life so that they would not desecrate his body and torture him. But guess what? They did it anyway. Look at what it says in verse 9. They cut off Saul's head. Hmm. Much like David did to a Philistine giant just a few chapters ago, isn't it? Cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news. Do you know in the Greek version of the Old Testament what that word is right there for good news? Gospel now you talk about a, <laughs> a false gospel, but to the Philistines, this was great news. The Israelite king and the crown and the crown princes were all dead throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall of Bethshan. Here again, we see the defeat by the enemies of God. God allowing the enemies of Israel To have the upper hand in order to teach them that they had to learn to trust in him and in him alone. By the way, just a little historical footnote for you. That town of Bethshan, that was not one of the Israelite villages that the Philistines had overtaken. That was a village that had never belonged to the Israelites. If you go back, if you'll just do a little word search and go back and look in the books of Joshua and Judges, you'll find that Bethshan was one of the towns that the Israelites were never able to conquer. It was always in the hands of other people. And by the way, another one that was in the hands of people who weren't Israelites was Endor, the place where the witch lived, the necromancer lived, that Saul went to. But Bethshan was kind of a neutral town. They weren't Philistine, but neither were they Israelite. And so they went and they took the body, uh, body of Saul and the body of his three sons, and they tacked it against the wall, headless armorless, probably stripped naked, left there right in the valley of Jezreel. Bethshan was sitting right at the entrance to that valley, to that pass to the mountain range called the valley of Jezreel, so that anybody that would come through there would see the corrupting, decaying corpses of the king of Israel and his three sons hanging on that wall. It was a day of great news in the temple of Dagon, because finally Dagon, their king, had defeated the Israelite king. Their people had defeated the Israelites, and those interlopers that had come in thinking they could take over the land that belonged to them would now be routed and defeated. Well, the final scene in this chapter is just a a little footnote scene that is uh, wonderful about the people of Jabesh Gilead. Look with me at these last few verses. 11 to 13. He says, When the residents of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave men set out, journeyed all night, retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. When they arrived at Jabesh, they burned the bodies there, and afterward they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. I just want to say one thing about this, this little footnote to this story. You say, Why the people of Jabesh Gilead? Well, if you go back, and look in 1 Samuel chapters 10 and 11. You'll remember that before Saul actually was anointed king, officially, he was given a little test. And the people of Jabesh Gilead had been overrun by their enemies. And Saul got word of it. And he gathered all the people and went and he redeemed them. He freed them from the hands of their enemies. And the people of Jabesh never forgot. Forty years later, they were the ones that said, we're going to return The favor that Saul did for us when he rescued us from our enemies. Maybe that's a little footnote just to remind us not everything that Saul did was terrible. He actually did a few good things. He had driven out the necromancers and the witches, the sorcerers from the land, and he had defeated the people, the enemies of the people of Jabesh Gilead. And they didn't forget what he had done for them. Well, there it is. Saul is dead. Jonathan, that wonderful, faithful friend of David, who was willing to be a right hand man to a king of a throne that maybe others would have said should have been yours, Jonathan. His two brothers dead, troops scattered all across the mountain, their bodies decaying in the sunshine. Hopeless. A hopeless situation. The Philistines. Taking town after town after town after town. Splitting the people north of them from those south of them. But was it hopeless? (laughs) Well, we know the rest of the story, don't we? No, it's not hopeless at all. Because back in chapter 30, we have another man, a hundred miles to the south, prayerfully, carefully seeking God's guidance, seeking God's leadership going after the Amalekites, redeeming his people and bringing them back home. No, this is not the end of the story. This is not a hopeless situation. There is one that God is raising up and shaping and molding and training to be the king that would truly be a man after God's own heart. And I know, I know that we know the rest of 2 Samuel. I know that we know that David sinned. Humanly speaking, probably a much worse sin than Saul ever did. And we'll talk about that when we get to that passage. But for now, at this point in the story, God has already got his man waiting in the wings. And that leads me to take five minutes and just talk to us about where we are in this story. I told you, one of the things we always have to ask ourselves is, so what? What does this mean to us? Stop with me one more time and compare these two men, Saul and David. Saul was a man who, even though he realized that God had given him his throne, thought that once he received it, it was his to do with as he wanted to. It was his to decide what he would do. It was not God's place. God had given him the king, the crown, and now it was his place to lead as he saw best. And God kept reminding him through Samuel and through others that he was the king, that God was the king. And Saul was to listen to him, and Saul would not have it. And we see where Saul ended. And then we have David, who was constantly seeking God's face. Should I go? Should I attack? Should I stay? Should I return? What should I do? And God continued to guide him because he was always seeking God's face. Now I have to ask us, and I'm looking you through this camera right into you sitting there at the beacon and asking you, which one are you? Oh, you would have no problem admitting that God gave you your health, your life, your job, your spouse, your kids, your home, your resources. But now that you have them, whose are they? Are they still God's? And do you act as if they were still God's and not yours? I hope so. I pray so, but let's just be perfectly honest. And I'm looking at you as straight on as I can and saying, in my life, there are times when I have been a Saul. There have been times when I have referred to you as my people, my church, my congregation. And I hope it's never with a sense of ownership, but I'm constantly having to remind myself, because as soon as I do that, God begins to say, Steve, you need to remember, these are my people. You are my servant, and you serve them by leading them. And you lead them by serving them. But they belong to me. And so I can speak of what I know when I am tempted to take ownership for things that truly belong to God. And I forget that I am a steward of his and not a master. And the same thing is true in our personal lives. When you go to work tomorrow morning. When you go to school tomorrow, students. When you head back to college tonight to start a new week of school this next week. Will you remember that all of this is because of God's grace, because of God's providence, because of God's plan in your life? And will you humbly, almost literally every step of your way, say, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? How do you want me to respond to this teacher, this boss, this coworker, this neighbor, this friend, this family member? If we choose the path of Saul, Because that's exactly, he was just reflecting what Israel had said. Samuel had tried to tell the people of Israel, listen, you already have a king. You don't need a human king. But they said, no, we want what we want. We want our will to be done. We want our wishes to come true. And they got it. And you see where it landed them. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we going to be more like Saul and say, my will be done? Or more like David, who said, Thy will be done. Because David has a descendant, a thousand years later, that knelt and said, Father, if it be possible, I don't want to drink this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. And that Jesus, that true anointed one, that Messiah, is the one who said, I will redeem my people. I will go to the land where they have been taken captive, and I will bring them back. I will bring them home. And you are sitting there today because you are one of those. He redeemed you by His own blood. He redeemed you through His own death. He bought you. His Father adopted you, and you are His. And that is cause for great rejoicing. So, beloved, remember, the way you die Not literally your physical death necessarily, but the way you end your life will be a reflection of the way you have lived your life. Saul lived his life for himself, and he died abandoned and alone. And if we live our lives for ourselves, God will leave us to our own devices, and we will end up in eternity separated from him. Or we can yield our lives to him and have the blessings in this life. And even more importantly, in the life to come, which one are you? Let's pray together. Father, I have a feeling there's probably not one person sitting in the beacon who would say, everything I have, I've got with my own efforts, i got with my own power, my own intellect. We all recognize, we've had too many funerals in the last two months not to recognize the fact that we cannot extend our lives by one second beyond your will and your plan. And so everything we have from the cradle to the grave comes from you, and we know that. But so often we live like Saul. We live our lives as if we're in charge, as if we're in control. And in this last section of this book, as we finish our study, we recognize the fact that we must if we're going to be blessed by you and guided by you and be people after your own heart, not only recognize that we've received what we have from you, but we are charged to use what we have in accordance with your will and not ours. So if there's one of us today, that's been praying, Lord, I really want my will to be done that we will get on our knees and say, Lord, it's not my will. It's thy will. It may be painful. It may be hard. It may be crushing, But we know that you love us, we know that you've redeemed us, we know that you care about us. And so we ask right now that your will would be done in our lives individually, as a church, as a community, and as the people of God. For it's in Jesus' name, the one who prayed that very prayer, we pray. Amen.